Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. Thank you so much for being here. I also want to say hello to our online and television audience. For those of you who are in the room, would you please give them a big hand? Today we come to Yom Kippur. Yom meaning day. Kippur is our English word atonement. If you have a Bible, please go to Leviticus 16. That's where we're going to be for the bulk of our time, Leviticus 16 and 17. Today, Yom Kippur is a day where Israel and Jews all around the world still come to a halt in many ways. The usual busy streets of Israel are many times blocked off and families will take their time strolling up and down what is normally bustling metropolitan areas. For modern Jews, the day is a day for at least personal reflection. The day can also be used as an opportunity to ask forgiveness from someone where you may have a strained relationship. It is a unique day in that a whole nation slows down and even stops. In the days of the writing of Leviticus and the days that followed up until the destruction of the temple, Herod's temple in 70 AD, this was a day, the Day of Atonement, that was very somber and serious. And it was, in fact, the most somber and serious day of the year. And what seems like a casual, leisurely day today was once a day of strict fasting and an extreme cry for God's mercy on the people. This was the only day of the year in which the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people and offer a crucial sacrifice. And if the high priest exited the Holy of Holies, it meant that God had accepted the sacrifice and released an entire nation of people from their sins. But the question is, what does all of this mean? And especially, what does it mean now for us? As we get started, if you don't mind, this is the last Sunday in our series entitled God's House, where we looked at the book of Haggai and Leviticus. Uh, but it's the last Sunday, but if you'll indulge me for just a moment, I'd like to remind us of the structure of the book of Leviticus, because if you just try to read it straight through like a narrative, you're going to be lost a little bit. So chapters one through seven deal with the ritual sacrifices for the people of Israel. And if you go to the other end, chapters 23 through 27 deal with the ritual calendar and other sacrifices for the people. And since it's a chiastic structure, if you come in a layer, chapters 8 through 10 deal with the ordination of the priest, where chapters 21 and 22 deal with the qualifications of a priest. And then again, if you come in a layer, chapters 11 through 15 deal with ritual purity, where chapters 18 through 20 deal with moral purity. Ritual purity being able to enter into, go into, close to, in close proximity with the presence of God, moral purity, how we live our lives. And then right at the very center, in chapter 16 and 17, we have the Day of Atonement. We all know that Leviticus is at the center of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the first five books of Moses. And so at the center of the center of the first five books, the center of the law, the Torah, if you will, is this Day of Atonement, which tells us that yes, we have a sin problem, but God has a sin solution. Now, there's four layers of context that we need to understand, I think, for us to understand Leviticus 16 and 17. The first layer of context has to do with the narrative and where we are in the narrative. 
If we think back to Leviticus chapter 9, verse 1, the verse says, on the eighth day, and then continues on. Because the, in chapters, uh, chapter 8 before it, there was seven days of celebration that was taking place with the ordination of the first priest. And then chapter 9, verse 1 says, on the eighth day, and it continues on with the narrative there. We pick it up in chapter 10 where Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron, he had four, two of his sons, usurped his authority, went into the temple to offer what the text calls strange fire. And for this, they die in God's presence, God's overwhelming presence that is pure, so pure that impurity cannot exist before him. And because they had done something that they had not been commanded to do and given permission to do by God, we see their death take place. When you get to Leviticus 16, verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. Which tells us that in uh, Leviticus 16, verse 1, we are, as far as the narrative goes, we're on the same day that started in Leviticus 9, verse 1. So everything that's been happening up to this point, we are still on the eighth day. So that is our context where we are in the narrative. The second layer of context we need to understand is the date. If we go to Leviticus 16, verses 29 and 30, it says this. And it shall be, it being the Day of Atonement, this day, a statute forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves, which means fasting, because that's what you're doing, and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. Verse 30, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. And so we see that this day, this day of atonement was supposed to happen uh, on the seventh, in the seventh month on the tenth day of that month. For us, this calendar year, that would be October 4th and 5th. So that's the time of the year that they are in. The third layer of context has to do with the place. The place where the sacrifice would take place. We see this in Leviticus 17, starting in verse 1. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp, verse 4, and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This sounds very extreme to us as modern readers, but you have to understand the point. The context of the place of where the sacrifice is to be brought is of great importance, because when the people bring their sacrifices to the entrance of the tent of meeting, to the entrance of the tabernacle, they are doing so as a public declaration of owning their sin. We as modern people, especially spiritual people, we like to talk about or think about our faith in personal, private terms. We even say things like, well, my faith is private, or I have my truth, which is a big statement being made today. But we have to understand throughout uh, scriptures, both Old and New Testament, our faith has never been something that is private and quiet and kept in secret. It's always been a public declaration of faith. And on this day, this day of atonement, when people would bring their sins before the Lord and the sacrifices being made, they are all coming in that moment and publicly declaring, my sin has caused this. My sin has separated me and us from God. 
So the context and the place in this moment matters greatly. So there's the context of the narrative. We're still on the eighth day. The context of the date. It is in the seventh month on the 10th day, our October 4, 5 time frame. The context of place is to be before the tent of meeting. They can't just go out in the woods and do it by themselves. And then also the last layer of context is the context of blood. Leviticus 17, verse 10 and following says, If any one of the house of Israel or strangers who are in the land among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. Again, we say harsh, but listen. For the life of the flesh is in its blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life, the life that is given in our, uh, in our place. Verse 12, therefore I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Verse 13, anyone also of the people of Israel or if any of their strangers among them who take in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth for the life of every creature is its blood and its blood is its life. Right here, we come to the sacredness of life. And we may say, why is this issue about blood? Why is all this talk about blood? Well, you have to think about it. The one commonality that we have in humanity is blood. It is the very core of who we are as people. We may look different. We may act different. We may have different gestures or languages or whatever it may be. But the one commonality that every human has is blood. And what God is saying is that our sin problem is so overwhelmingly personal and systemic, personal and systemic, that it penetrates right down to the very core of our DNA, which we pass on from generation to generation. So not only is our sin problem inescapable, we can't escape it. It reaches to the core of our existence as a human being, and therefore blood is sacred and yet at the same time it is defiled. And so the context here is very important. The narrative, we're on the eighth day. The date, we are October 4 or 5 in our calendar. The seventh month on the 10th day. The place before the tent of meeting. And it's all about the context of blood being shed on our behalf. All of that gives us context for Leviticus 16 verse 1. Pick it up in verse 2 and we see that Aaron has to prepare himself for this act of worship as he is the chosen high priest. Verse two says, and the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come in at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. Again, God's presence is so pure, impurity cannot exist before him. He says, for I will appear in a cloud over the mercy seat. This is God's very presence on the earth. God has come to tabernacle with his people. But verse three says this, but in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat. He shall have the linen undergarments on his body. He shall tie a linen sash around his waist and wear a linen turban. 
These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water, not just his hands as the priest would normally do, his entire body, and then put them on, verse 5, and he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Remember, the burnt offering was completely consumed before the Lord. Verse 6, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his family. Again, Aaron has to prepare to be the high priest and go into the Holy of Holies in this moment uh, on behalf of the people. Notice, yes, he is taking offerings for himself to cleanse the way for him to offer on behalf of the whole people. And then notice, too, he's wearing simple white linen garments. He is not wearing the normal high priestly um, dress that he would have that we looked at earlier in this series. Also notice that Aaron is chosen for this. Aaron did not volunteer for this. We live in an age of volunteerism where it's kind of in vogue to volunteer for things. I get all of that. But the question that the church should ask themselves, not what do I want to volunteer for, but what is God calling me to? But that is another sermon for another day that you may hear sometime in the very near future. Now, in verse 7, we pick it up and it says... This is where it gets interesting. Then he shall take two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, verse 8, and Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. Now, some of your translations say scapegoat. Hang with me. Verse 9, and Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as the sin offering, but the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, and it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Now, you're probably sitting here going, who in the world is that? Hang with me for just a second. Notice that Aaron is to cast lots over the two goats, which one goes before the Lord and which one then goes in the wilderness to Azazel. And in casting lots, what Aaron is doing, both throughout the Old Testament, we see this in the New Testament as well. They're not gambling, by the way. In casting lots, what they are doing is they're saying, this is God's choice through what looks like chance. God is choosing which go to sacrifice, and God is choosing which go to send into the wilderness to Azazel through what looks like chance. Remember Solomon said, Proverbs 16, we may cast lots in our lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. We cast the lots, but God ultimately decides, and that's what's taking place here. And then we say, what is the deal with this goat that will be killed before the Lord, and then one is sent into the wilderness to Azazel? The reason why Azazel appears in the ESV, English Standard Version, is because it's the transliterated word, not translated word, transliterated word from the original Hebrew. And so a transliterated word is where you just put an English letter with the Hebrew equivalent. Many times it's translated as scapegoat, but Azazel as a Hebrew word is a compound word. Azza means strong or powerful. El, E-L, means a spiritual being, like El Shaddai, right? Names for God. And so there's a strong, powerful spiritual being in which this goat is being sent out in the wilderness to. And we raise the question, who is Azazel? And the answer is, you already know. You know because Azazel appears in the beginning of Scripture as a snake. And Azazel appears at the end of Scripture, Revelation 12, as a dragon. Azazel has many names, the accuser of the brethren, the evil one, the tempter. 
Jesus had a conversation with Azazel. If you go to, let's say, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. Where is Azazel in Leviticus 16? The wilderness. To be tempted by the devil. Hang with me. These two sacrifices are what happens on the Day of Atonement. Verses 11 through 14 talk about Aaron uh, purifying for himself, making atonement for himself so that he can go in and offer this. We pick it up in verse 15 with the first goat. The one before the Lord, it says, verse 15, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people. So this is the one where the lot fell before the Lord. And bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the bull, uh, blood of the bull. Sprinkle it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Verse 16, thus he shall make atonement for the holy place. Now you're probably thinking, now wait a minute, I thought the atonement was for the people. It is but watch. He makes atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all of their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. Notice that. He, God is dwelling with them in the midst of their uncleanness. That is the miracle. That is the miracle. That God has created this world where he wants to dwell with his people. Even though sin has separated us from God, God wants to be with his people. The problem is we have a sin problem. And sin does what sin does. It creeps in and it contaminates. That is the very nature of sin. And so atonement is made, according to the text, for the holy place. The day of atonement, one of the things that's taking place here... It is this gut-wrenching acknowledgement by the people that my sin, that our sin, permeates all of who we are right down to the very blood that runs through our veins. And that sin contaminates everything that I do, even acts of worship. And the holy place is cleansed. And when that happens, the people are saying, God, we did it again we brought our sin all the way, literally, to your doorstep, the doorstep of the tent of meeting. Our sin is what has separated us from you, but the miracle is, is God, you want to be with us. You stay. You stay with us. This is not the pagan sacrifices of the ancient world. This is not the mass sacrifices that would take place in Egypt, for example, which Israel would probably have been familiar with. This is not the retainer sacrifices to appease uh, the Norse gods to get into Valhalla. This is totally different than what's taking place in all those myths. People are saying in this moment on the Day of Atonement with complete honesty and humility, we did this. Our sin has separated us from you. And what God is saying in this moment is that I want to be with you and because of my holiness, I will make a way. In mythology, it was Zeus who needed the sacrifices of people. He needed the worship and the prayers of people in order to sustain his existence. That's not what we see with Yahweh in the Old Testament at all. 
What we see with God is God required sacrifice to cleanse the space of separation because sin constantly creeps in and contaminates. It is to cleanse the space of separation between us and him, and in doing so, the people are acknowledging this is our fault. Sacrifice number one. Sacrifice number two, we see it in verse 20. And when he had made an end of atoning for the holy place and for the tent of meeting and the altar, that's the first sacrifice, he shall present the live goat, Verse 21, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel. Notice the word iniquities. All their transgressions. Notice the word transgression. All their sins. Notice the word sin. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness, someone who is prepared to lead the goat out into the wilderness. It was Jesus who was led by the Spirit into the wilderness in Matthew 4. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on himself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. And as 7 through 10 says, to Azazel. You see, at our core, we have a sin problem. Sin means missing the mark. We know that. It means we miss the mark in life when it comes to God's will and God's ways for our life. What sin leads to is transgression, sometimes translated trespasses. It's where we cross a line we should not cross, and we do so intentionally in disobedience. But sin not only leads to transgression, sin leads to iniquity, which iniquity is this premeditated choice that we make to not repent. We love our sin more than our God. And so sin leads us to transgress, sin leads us into iniquity, and all of this is placed on the head of the goat that is sent out into the wilderness to Azazel. And in so doing, what God is saying is, Satan, you can have what is yours. The sin is not meant for my people. You can have it back. As I told somebody in the hallway in between service, it's a divine return to sender. And God says all the pain and all the heartache that is caused by your sin, Satan, one day I'm gonna deal with once and for all. It is no surprise that when Jesus begins his ministry, where does he go? Where does he go? Into the wilderness. Who is there? Satan. It's as if Jesus begins his ministry by going out into the wilderness where all those sins have been sent generation after generation after generation. And it says Jesus stands there and says, I've come to deal with all of this. Jesus, like Aaron, was chosen for this. See, Aaron did not choose. He did not volunteer for this role as high priest. Neither did Jesus. Go to Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5, verse 1, says, For every high priest chosen from among the men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. They are chosen for this. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. 
Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. What's the very next verse? So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said, you are my son. Aaron was appointed to be the first high priest to atone for sins, the sins of the people, through two goats, one before the Lord, one sent out into the wilderness. But it was Jesus who was appointed to be the greater high priest who would atone for sins once and for all. It was Aaron who came in humbleness, even in the way he dressed before the Lord was humble in that sense. But it's also Jesus who came humbly as well. We see the words in Philippians chapter two, verses five through eight. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that's where we get it from, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, just like Aaron did. Being born in the likeness of men, Jesus went further, verse eight, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Aaron was appointed, Jesus was appointed as the greater high priest. Aaron came humbly before the Lord. Jesus came humbly from the glory of heaven to earth. But then Jesus did what Aaron could not. He gave himself as a ransom for many. If we go to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, it says this. For this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so you might follow in his steps. Oh, we just love reading that verse, don't we? First, I thought that was funny. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Listen to verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Do you hear it? He bore our sins in his body just as the high priest Aaron, the first one, would take his hands, place it on the head of the goat bearing the sins of the people. It was Jesus who bore our sins in his body on the tree with nails in his hand, nails in his feet, and a crown of thorns on his head. And what pierced him was my sin and was your sin. And in so doing, Jesus was bearing our sins on himself, just as the goat had done for generations. But it says this, he bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, that's something the law could never do, by his wounds you have been healed. He's not only bearing our sins as the scapegoat, if you will, but he's also dying a death that we should die, and it's through his wounds we are healed. Just as the sacrifice was there in place for the holy place, so that God would remain and could tabernacle with his people as unholiness was trying to creep in on holiness. Jesus came, died in our place, and through that we have been healed, meaning we now have a path to the Father, which was the claim of Jesus' ministry through him. 
If we go to Zechariah, Zechariah 13, Zechariah was a contemporary of Haggai, which we studied earlier in the summer. In Haggai, uh, Zechariah 13, verse 1, it says, On that day, on that day when the Messiah will come and do what only the Messiah can do, on that day there should be a fountain opened from the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Sin and uncleanness. We see in Hebrews 9, if we could go back to Hebrews. Hebrews 9, 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come and then through the greater, more perfect tent, not the tent of meeting, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, not a yearly redemption. Verse 13, for it is the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of uh, defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's what he did for us. That's what the day of atonement points to. What the day of atonement points to is the Messiah who would come into the world and do two things, two things that you cannot find anywhere else in any other world religion. Go look. The two things are forgiveness of sins, yes, but also cleansing of sins. Or to use Peter's language and Isaiah's language, healing from sins. Because God does not just want to sweep our sin under the rug. He cannot. His holy demands justice. And so it has to be dealt with. That's the thing in a lot of us modern thinkers. say, Well, why can't God just kind of like get over it, right? No, he wants to forgive, yes, but then cleanse us that we may be healed from our sin. We need to be forgiven from the sins we have committed, yes, and we need to be cleansed from the sins that has hurt us and defiled us as well. And only in Jesus can you get both. Only in Jesus can you get both. And just like on the Day of Atonement, when the people would come and they would stand around as these sacrifices were being made, all of them standing there, they were standing there as a public acknowledgement that it was my sin, it was our sin, that's the reason why blood has to be shed. That's the whole reason. And so if you go one more time, if you don't mind, 1 John. 1 John 1 a few of the most liberating verses in all of Scripture. Verse John 1, 7 says it's the blood of Jesus, his son, that cleanses us from all sin. Notice that word cleanse there. Verse 8 is many times our reality where it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So many times that's what we do. So yeah, there's kind of a sin problem out there. It may be systemic at best or there may be, you know, people do some wrong things. And we have to come to this place where we acknowledge, yes, there is a sin problem and I have it and you have it. But God has dealt with it. That's why he says in verse nine, if, 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 if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God deals with the sins that we have committed. God deals with the sins that have been committed against us and there we find the healing we need. And there's only one place you can find it. And just as they had to do in the day, on the day of atonement where people had to publicly acknowledge that, the way we gain access to this is to confess 
The word confess means to call it what God calls it. It's when you do this. I'll give you a physical motion. You ready? It's when you go, that was my sin. It's my sin. The people of Israel gathered around the Day of Atonement. They're all standing there. They may not be doing this, but it's what they're saying. And what God asks of us today, 1 John 1, 9, confess your sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That is the gospel. As long as you and I are willing to say, it was my sin. It was my sin that held him there. My sin. Chris Montgomery's sin. Your sin. Your name's sin. That's all it takes. And that blood is applied to your life for forgiveness and for the cleansing, the healing that you long for. Amen? So, Father, in this moment, while there's so many things going on in our mind right now, I pray we block all that out for just a second, just a second. And we say, it's my sin. That's why Jesus came. And he came because you loved me. You wanted to be with us. It was the love of the Father that flowed through the Son on that day. And now it is the Holy Spirit whom the Son has sent to us that reveals this so that we may see it. So today, Lord, may we receive once again, the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. And may we acknowledge humbly, but honestly, it was our sin. And in so doing, we receive the forgiveness we need, the cleansing we long for. Help us receive the forgiveness we need and the cleansing we long for. Come, Lord.